at Jared. We know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo. With me today is Dan Lyons. Hey, everyone. Happy uh, Tyus Battle is coming back to Syracuse week. Tyus Battle is coming back to Syracuse. Scared the crap out of us for a good hour or so yesterday, and for those listening, Wednesday. But nonetheless, um, he is coming back. This is a pretty unprecedented, at least not maybe completely unprecedented, but unexpected happening for Syracuse. Usually good things don't happen to us in the offseason. This is just really nice for us to be able to enjoy, you know, something something positive for once um, while there aren't actual games going on. Yeah. I mean, we were all, like, you know, hoping that Tyus would make, you know, the decision that was right for him, and I think we were all pretty emotionally prepared for him to leave had that happened. Um, You know, I think we have enough practice at watching guys leave. And it would have been hard to blame him, um, but uh, very happily, not totally surprised, but happy, uh, happy to finally get one of these guys sticking around for an extra year. Because um, I really can't think of the last guy who like had a legitimate NBA like big hopes that 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 stayed the extra year, uh, at least even to like the level that Battle does, where he was probably like a fringe first rounder. It sounded like probably a second rounder. Because um, like even. You know, Wyden probably could have improved his stock a little bit if he had stayed, but uh, but you know there was a good chance of him being a first round pick, and he was one. I, I heard some people talking about like CJ, but CJ never really had like huge NBA you know hype behind him, and you know so he stayed for a senior year, which probably made the most sense. So it was nice to finally get one of these guys who could have left, and he probably would have been drafted, um, but he elected to stay, and and hopefully he can play himself into uh, into a first round pick with the extra year. Yeah, I mean, this was the good thing for me, and I mentioned this um, on the blog. Like, it was great to see the process actually work really well for Battle um, and, and work the way it's supposed to. You know, if you go in without an agent, um, you're able to get an honest assessment. You're able to kind of get thoughts on, you know, uh, what you need to fix, where you would conceivably go. Like, this is what the process was meant to do, and, it, and, and for once, the NCAA actually did something right where— uh, you know, th- th- there's a really good, I mean, it's not perfect, but there is a better model in place right now um, that at least lets players like Battle, who might have just, you know, declared sight unseen a few years ago, and now he's able to make a, an educated, conscious decision and then decide to come back because he wants to better, you know, his game and himself so that he can be a better pro down the road. Yeah, it's it's such a better system than what we had a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know if there was anyone that, like, it cost us um, for an extra year, maybe. But overall, like, it, it just makes so much sense for the players. Um, it, it's just a huge advantage to be able to know what it is that they um, have to work on specifically. Obviously, Ty has shared some of the insight he got. And, and, and you know, it just allows you know, guys to, to make an informed decision, which is nice because we have so many, you know, the, the, years, before, the years leading up to this, this new change, like, you saw such huge numbers of players leaving early and going undrafted. And, you know, some of those guys might have been fine going undrafted. They just didn't want to be in college anymore. And they were like, you know, if I can make it, I, I will. If not, I'm going to go to Europe. And that's fine. That's, like, totally uh, up to them. But 
I'm sure there are plenty of guys who would have liked to have come back and, and really just got some bad advice or, or uh, just kind of overplayed their hands. So um, I appreciate how Battle, uh, I thought he did, he handled this whole process really well. I thought his, um, I thought I was impressed with how his family handled it. They like kind of left it up to him and said all the right things. And, and obviously the fan base is thrilled to have him back after uh, the, the not really, like it wasn't really drama, but it was drama just because <laughs> we were all so anxious last night. But he just wanted to play some more three on three. So that was fine. That was fun. Yeah, I think, you know, too, uh, some some of the drama, I guess, associated with it also comes from just our typical Syracuse fandom, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop and all that. Um, I, I think everyone just had this panic. I know I, I was actually in the Las Vegas airport um, watching some of this unfold, um, and I was definitely uh, at least a little nervous getting on the plane back to L.A. But nonetheless, uh, glad he's back. And, and now I think, you know, the next question becomes... What happens to expectations for Syracuse? Um, you know, Matt Norlander uh, had a couple articles today on NBC Sports. He had a tweet talking about, you know, just how wide the gulf was between Syracuse with battle and Syracuse without. Um, I I kind of respond to that a little bit, uh, that I do disagree with the, with the idea, if only because I do think that, you know, I think Syracuse's ceiling with battle um, is, is significantly higher than their ceiling without him. But I, I think the you know the median result you're going to get uh, from from a Syracuse team without Battle and a Syracuse team with him, uh, I, I don't necessarily think it is so far apart. I think both of those teams make the tournament, um, and I know Norlander in particular was was suggesting that this is a 500 team without Battle, which I think is fairly incorrect. Yeah, we talked about it last week, um, and we don't have to rehash that whole discussion. But without Battle, this team would have would have really had to find have to find a new identity, and. Um, it might have ended up being a positive for the guys who are still here because, you know, they, they don't have a guy to lean back on as, you know, the ball-dominant player who will go out and get you 20 points no matter what. That being said, I do think the floor and the ceiling for this team with battle are higher um, as long as they don't just turn into the same offensive club they were last year. And, and with the development of these these guys in the coming year, like you hope that we turn into, you know, a bit more ball movement, um, hopefully you get some some better outside shooting. Um, hopefully you have more than three guys who can store on any kind of consistent basis. Um, with Jalen Terry coming in and and Elijah Hughes joining the uh, or coming off of his his redshirt year and the improvement that we saw from uh, Marek, like you know you just hope that that this isn't just ties coming back and and it's gonna be the same thing as last season where you know you get lucky and make the tournament and then have to you know rely on the zone just beating up on people like hopefully we're we do become a more well-rounded team uh with him where you know i think we would have been forced into it if he had left but i'm, I'm glad he's back i think we were all rooting for that as syracuse fans so uh and i think the ceiling is definitely higher if we can kind of find that that more team specific approach next season uh versus you know we were kind of forced into it being the tie show last year and, and he did the best he could it wasn't his fault at all and I think that would be good for him too, because efficiency and and being more of a well-rounded player versus just being this this you know store above everything else is one of those things that I think he he probably needs to improve on and and has been told as much uh, going into next year's draft. Yeah, I mean, anyone thinking that we're going to see the same Tyus battle uh, is definitely going to be incorrect. Well, what I am curious though to see is how that how a different Tyus battle affects the team. Um, I think it's going to be in a positive way, and I hope that's the case because, you know, maybe we don't see him score 19 a game. Maybe we see him score something more like 16, and numbers-wise, that might be perceived as a step back. But if he scores 16 while also collecting, let's say, four or five rebounds, four or five assists, 
per game um, versus the three and three that he had this year. If he's doing that on on a better shooting percentage, on on, on less volume, like I think scouts end up seeing that as some real positive progress. You know, uh, there's there's plenty of reasonable Syracuse fans here, and 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 I don't blame those folks for how they are. Um, and there's also a lot of folks who are like kind of on a rocket ship to Mars right now in terms of expectations. And I think that's a little, uh, I mean, I understand it right now, but I think in the next few days, I think we've all got a kind of level set, uh, not to say that Syracuse is going to struggle to make the tournament again, cause I don't see that being the case. Um, but, uh, I would say for us to really take that next step from being like a surprise sweet 16 participant to de- to being, uh, a team that's supposed to be in the sweet 16 and potentially beyond, like it's going to take not only battle adjusting his game a little bit, but, you know, Frank Howard potentially scoring a little bit more um, and being a little bit more efficient from the field. O'Shea Brissett being able to finish at the rim more and being able to find some consistency from outside. Um, we'll see if Barama Sidibe is healthy. We'll see if Chukwu can turn into a little bit more of an offensive threat. Uh, Marek Doljai so, so, uh, showed off some, you know, really impressive games late in the season. It'd be great to see him kind of, you know, show some real meaningful progress now uh, through the offseason into next season. Like, there's the contributions from new guys like Elijah Hughes and Jalen Carey and potentially Buddy Beheim. There's no guarantees that all of those guys are going to progress positively. We hope they do, and it would make sense linearly that they do. But, you know, th- these things aren't always linear. And I think that's just the one thing, not to be a wet blanket, that's the one thing I think everyone should keep in mind, that progress doesn't always happen linearly for every single individual player. The team could still get better, but we don't we can't really necessarily bank on everybody taking one big leap forward together. No, if everyone takes a, a big leap forward together, this team to be really, really outstanding. Um, it's more likely that, you know, you have incremental progress from a, a number of guys and, and hope that guys like uh, Chukru don't, don't stall out totally. But even if he's the same player as he was last year, he was a very useful player. He could be, you know, he could have uh, improvement just based on the fact that he, will hopefully not have to play, you know, 35 minutes a game, and you can get some more run for Sidibe, who we saw have some really, really impressive games before he was hurt. Um, obviously, you hope that he's healthy, and, and you don't need everyone to take this big leap forward. You just need, you know, some steps forward here and there, and then just having a more well-rounded, just having more guys who can do some things versus just being three, um, who can store and, and make anything happen with the ball in their hands. Um is going to be huge, and, and I would be very surprised if uh, if we don't have at least a little more playmaking between you know Hughes and Terry and um, the the improvements we've seen from some of the the forwards. Uh, it just seems highly unlikely that we're going to go through this whole off season and not just see at least a couple of other guys step up, so that we're not relying on the same three guys, and that should benefit everyone across the board. No, absolutely. I think if we even see just a little more ball movement. Um, alone if you if you if you add two and a half assists per game I, I think the the outcome for Syracuse you know at least not maybe not from a wins perspective but at least from a like efficiency of the offense perspective uh, looks significantly better right away I think if you jump that up even more great I don't think the tempo is necessarily gonna increase by a ton I know tempo was it was a conversation point from a lot of people in the comments today around battle um, and the offense's efficiency or lack thereof. I, I think you can still run at a slower tempo. You just need to be able to hit shots. And I think if you play at, at, at as slow a tempo as we did last year, um, it's fine if you can... Like, I know Ken Palm had us around, I think, 135 or so in terms of efficiency on offense. That's not great when you're running at that slow of a pace. 
Um, we've run at a slow pace before, but the efficiency numbers have been more in the top 50. If you can get that shooting quality and ability up into the top 50 or so range, um, that's when, you know, paired with this defense, this team becomes absolutely lethal. Yeah, you can run at a slow pace if you're knocking down shots like Virginia does. Last year where we were running, we were playing incredibly slow and not hitting shots is not generally a sustainable model. So either we have to shoot better or we need to up the pace um, or hopefully both or or at least be able to like modify the pace at which your offense plays. Last year, we just happened to catch lightning in the battle with the zone uh, being outstanding as it often is in March. But I don't think that was a sustainable model where, you know, you have battle pound the rock into the court, uh, score 19 points. Um, and then hopefully just have other teams go six minutes without storing every night, which, you know, happens more often than you think, but I wouldn't bet on that being the thing that works, you know, two years in a row, uh, the way it did, um, last season and, and even 2015, but, but that year we had more, uh, offensive threats and better outside shooting. So I don't see any reason why the defense should get worse. And I mean, aside from maybe just like the numbers, you know, force it a little bit to, to, you know, just as it was so good at the end of last year, but, um, Offensively, I expect a pretty big step forward uh, in both categories, but at least one. Like, one of those two things has to has to turn, and I think it will. Yeah, same here. I, I mean, like you said, I don't see the defense getting worse necessarily. I would hope it gets better because you have guys on less tired legs. Everyone has a year in the system now. Last year's biggest problem at the beginning was inexperience in the zone, and I feel like we resolved that by the midseason point. So now... Um, you know, maybe you sacrifice a little defense for some offense. Luckily, I think we have some wiggle room to do that. We were a top 10 defense for, like, by the time the end of the season rolled around, you know, from an efficiency standpoint. So if we drop from 10 to 15, that's still fine if your offense went from, let's say, wherever we were, you know, offense efficiency-wise, we were somewhere in the, in the 130 range. If we even jumped it up to 90th, I'll take that trade off. Uh, for for ten, you know, just for from a for a drop from ten to fifteen, uh, just to get us a few more points and, and get us out of those, you know, kind of really ugly slugfests that we we really needed to gut out at the end of the season. Yeah, and I'm I'm never totally worried about the zone being able to turn it on. Obviously, you're going to run into some teams that are either really well equipped to handle it or just get crazy hot. And and in that case, like you're probably not going to win the kind of shootout that might entail unless you just happen to have like one of those teams like where we had you know a ton of three-point shooting like in 2010 um but overall like the defense you know even if it took a step back which i uh, overall for the season which i don't expect um or you know maybe it's just hurt by the pace a little bit because we won't be just slowing it down to a crawl um I think the offense should take a, a big enough step forward that it'll more than offset it. And when we get into crunch time, we're playing, you know, non-ACC opponents who aren't super familiar with it. I'm I'm very confident that the zone will still be a very much a weapon that people complain about in March. Oh, I, I 100% agree. And I think, you know, I think this, it's funny when you see the zone working at, at optimal capacity, uh, as we discussed all throughout, you know, March and into April, even a little bit, like that's when things that's when things really get to click for this team in the regular season, but more importantly in the postseason when you have, you know, short rest, unfamiliarity. Um, that's why we didn't want to run into Duke um, in the Sweet 16 because they obviously knew the zone. They ran a form of the zone. I really like what we can do this year. Again, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but um, I, I do think that this team has, you know, top 15 potential Um but again, it's going to take some of that progress that I was alluding to earlier. Obviously, you can't just trot out exactly what we saw for much of last season and expect better results. 
Yeah, that's not going to work. And I don't think any of us want to watch that. Like, it's fine when it's March and you're battered against the wall and you're, you know, kind of getting the national attention. So you can you can kind of uh, internalize all the people complaining. But, like, during the season, we didn't want to watch, you know, our team store 55 points. Like, we want to see a, a good offensive club. And, and hopefully this year with more than two guards able to play, um, <laughs> you know, a couple minutes and not having to throw in a walk-on if anyone gets in foul trouble, uh, I'm I'm pretty confident that we'll we'll see a much more uh, visually appealing Syracuse Orange Club. And you know what, the, that depth part really is a, an underrated factor. I know all of us understand that, but it is interesting how how much during the season people discounted the depth issue, except when it was convenient for an argument. Um, how much in the tournament people just, you know kind of discounted that that depth issue. And then now you're even seeing like already uh, commentators are kind of leaning back on the, the tired narrative from last year of, of a lack of depth. Well, the reason that we didn't have depth is alleviated because, you know, nobody left, players get healthy, we added players. So it's not that it, everything is fine, but depth certainly isn't the issue now that it was even two months ago. Um, and, you know, it, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what... what, what national commentators have to say i mean granted i think they should get themselves a little more familiar with the the program but you know i i i fully expect you know the the depth to play a very significant factor this year and 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 pay a bigger dividend than i think you know even even we might uh think of when it comes to you know this defense being fresher this offense being more fluid um i I, i'm excited for it and i'm probably more excited for it than i've been in in a while for for an SU team, uh, at least since like in the post sanctions world, going into like June. Yeah, I think I think I had pretty high expectations going into two years ago, and and it ended up making the Final Four. It was just kind of a rocky road to get there. Um, after we got uh, the transfers, uh, I thought we were going to be really good. And they had uh, told us we were going to be really good. Yeah, and then that wasn't quite that didn't quite work out last year or two years ago. Well, the season before last. Right. Um, so it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident going forward. Just, it's, it's the first time in forever that we, we have a lot of known quantities. Like we're not relying on, on grad transfers, which, you know, I don't mind taking a grad transfer here and there. I think Bayheim is probably, I bet he's kind of soured on it. Um, not that Andrew White wasn't good, but you know, Dylan had ups and downs. And then, uh, this year we obviously had the, uh, the bizarre issue with, um, Thorpe. with, you know, Thorpe, uh, leaving the program, Versus like you know Elijah Hughes now has a full year under the in the program. He's not just being thrown in there. He'll he you know has probably learned the zone pretty well, at least as well as someone who hasn't played it live uh, can. But overall, like uh, just the fact that we have um, you know five starters coming back for the first time in in however long is 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 really nice. Um, just because we've been plugging in so many new guys year over year, which is not unusual for college basketball, but. That definitely instills some confidence, especially how after last season ended, um, we can be pretty encouraged by that. I would agree. And I guess that encourages uh, the next point about basketball before we hit halftime. ACC Big Ten Challenge uh, opponents have apparently been released. Syracuse will be visiting Ohio State. Uh, first time we're facing the Buckeyes since 2012. That ill-fated, uh, horrendous-to-watch Elite Eight game where we lost 77-70. to <sighs> Ohio State took 42 free throws. Um, it was pretty miserable to just witness any part of that game. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to hopefully uh, getting some payback, um, you know, on the Buckeyes' floor this time around. 
Yeah, that's one of my least favorite Syracuse games ever. It was uh, the, <laughs> the final game of the final game of my senior year. Um, SB Nation was going to send Sean and I to New Orleans to cover the Final Four if we had won. Um, I was 21, so that would have been cool. Um, yeah, just not, just not great. Uh, so yeah, I would like to win that game. And they don't. They they lost. I mean, I'm sure they'll be pretty good. Um, they were surprisingly good this year, but they lose Kata Bates Diop, who was. Um, by far the best player. He's staying in the NBA draft. He was kind of their do-it-all guy. So I'm sure they'll be good, but that definitely takes away from from how good they'll be. Yeah, I mean, this past year, they were like a top 10, 15 club. I feel like they're probably like a fringe top 25 to just outside of the top 25 this next time around. That means that the Syracuse-Ohio State game is probably not going to be near the top of the list um, in in terms of the matchups, but um, still should be a compelling one. Obviously, we're biased, but... You know, people like to watch whatever Ohio State's doing in some way, shape, or form. And, and you don't really see SU on the road a lot in a true road game um, in non-conference play. So, uh, I'm actually kind of glad we're, putting on, we're going on the road for this one. I think same. that'll help the, the schedule. Um, and I don't think Ohio State was, like, enough of a huge basketball draw to, like, really make it awesome to be in the Dome. Um, so I'm glad we're getting a, a nice true road game that people will, I'm sure, like, poo-poo when it comes to the time of the season where everyone craps on our schedule, even though we usually schedule pretty well. Yeah, I mean, this year we've already scheduled pretty well, I think. Uh, I mean, Georgetown should be improved. Uh, That game's at home. Got Ohio State on the road. We'll face two of uh, UConn, Iowa, and Oregon um, in Madison Square Garden. I think Oregon's going to be around like a top 15-ish team. So that should be another, you know, hopefully big game on the schedule for us. Assuming I'm assuming they're going to face us up against UConn in round one and then have the final be us, hopefully, um, against either Oregon or Iowa. So, again, that, that's another game that helps us. Buffalo should be good enough from an RPI perspective, and I think they're going to be you know maybe like a slight step below last year. They're still probably the MAC favorite. Old Dominion's on the schedule. Uh, Cornell's on the schedule. Colgate will likely be on the schedule. Uh, we'll have some other body bag games in there, but... Nonetheless, like this is to me, this is fine. This is exactly what you want out of an SU schedule. Um, I, I think, you know, I, ideally, what you do is you, if you keep the Georgetown schedule, game on the schedule, what you do is you have that game on the road the year, the same year you're hosting a Big Ten team, and vice versa. Um, but I know that's not necessarily feasible for us to do either. Yeah, I mean that's a good idea. In an ideal world, we don't know that we're going to keep on playing Georgetown every year. I hope we do. And it seemed like pretty positive that uh, that people that they they want to do that, but um, if Jim wants it to happen, it'll happen. Yeah, that's probably right. It's a matter of does Georgetown want it to happen, which I imagine. But um, to say this is like the only game they get up for ever, um, especially when it's there, that's the only game that anyone goes to. <laughs> yeah, but overall, like I'm I'm rooting for that to stay, keep going. Agreed, agreed. Um, all right, why don't we do a little halftime, and then uh, we can talk. Sunbelt football. So for those who don't care about anything past basketball, this is your uh, this is your jumping point. It was nice talking at you. <laughs> All right, Dan, what have you been drinking? Um, I had a pretty busy week. Um, over the weekend, I went to Fifth Hammer Brewing Company in Queens, which I had not been to um, and was only vaguely aware of. But they have like a really big operation going there. You know, one of the old warehouse type deals, but um, really nice setup. Some some solid beers. Uh, I'd say the highlights, there was uh, the Szechuan Paradise, which was super interesting. Um, 
trying to pull up the description just so I, I give it. It, it was a it was a saison. Um, there was definitely some like citrusy elements, but then they also used Szechuan peppercorns. I was gonna say um, peppercorns like, sounded exactly like what I would add there. Yeah, which uh, gave it an interesting like spice, but it wasn't like you know obnoxious or anything. It worked really well. Um, there were also some grains of paradise in there. Really interesting blend of flavors. Um, one of the more unique beers I've had in a while. Um, but I also had their Queens of Kettle, which was delicious. A uh, really nice sour. Uh, let me see. I'm not trying to name all of them. Said a lot. Uh, they had a summer blackberry sour, which was delicious. Uh, they had uh, the cheerful chinchilla, which I believe was one of their session. No, it was regular IPA, not the session. I had a different session, but this one was probably the best beer I had from them overall. Um, really nice hop profile. Uh, just a really rock solid IPA. Um, then I had uh, some other stuff from not them. Um, LIC Beer Projects, Toted Tiles, one of the better New York City beers I've had in a while. Uh, that was another uh, IPA, I believe. Uh, Untapped is not loading. Uh, yeah, that was a... Oh, no, it was regular pale ale. Um, but really nice hot profile as well. Definitely one of the regular pales, uh, better regular pales I've had out of New York. Um, I had a Carton Boat Beer, which is not New York, New Jersey, but one of the better Northeastern, um, Northeastern beers around here. Uh, I had a really interesting tangerine and pineapple sour from Big Alice, another Queens brewery, uh, which is delicious. And then I had a Lawson Sip of Sunshine from up in Vermont, uh, which is great, um, which uh, a friend uh, happily brought to me, uh, which was nice. And then there was something else. Oh, the last one I was supposed to bring up. Um, I had Cedar City's uh, Oatmeal Raisin Turkey Brown Ale, which mm. is delicious. Yeah, Cedar City, um, which I trusted them. Uh, but a uh, friend of the podcast, Adam, uh, recommended this one previously uh, and it wasn't something I would usually order but he said it was really really good and I got it and it was really really good so I'm, I'm happy he told me that and I told him I would give him a shout out on the podcast because I know he's listening so uh, yeah so that was good I have other things too you can check out Untapped at a lot a lot this past weekend for uh, first time in a while so that was nice nice uh, on my end I was traveling uh, starting last Saturday through yesterday uh, I was touring the middle of the country as I'd mentioned uh, so first stop, I was in Omaha. I went to uh, Upstream Brewing Company um, over in the uh, Old Market neighborhood over there. Had a uh, Capital Premium Pale Ale from them that was pretty good. Uh, they had a few other things, and I want to like exhaust everybody with everything that I had from all of them. But um, Infusion Brewing is another uh, you know Omaha slash Nebraska like local. They had a uh, Vanilla Bean Blonde, which uh, really good combination. Like they didn't overdo the vanilla. So it was like just the right combination there. Um, a local favorite of mine that I have, uh, it gets around just like the central part of the country and gets out as far as Arizona. The uh, Cardinal Pale Ale from Nebraska Brewing Company, it's pretty good. Um, when I got to Wichita, Kansas, I had uh, River City Brewing Company. I had their Tornado Alley uh, IPA. Um, and I had a bunch of other stuff from them that, I wasn't as big of a fan of, unfortunately. One was, it's complicated, was a uh, dark sour ale that was pretty good. Um, moving down the list, uh, I was joking with Aaron Goldfarb, a uh, friend of the blog and pod, that uh, all the all the beers that he and I had been judging for years on our uh, Drinking the NCAA Tournament series, uh, you know, sight unseen, I finally got to try a lot of them. So it was nice to, uh, to give those a shot. But I tried uh, Wichita Brewing Company's uh, V6 IPA that was pretty good. Um, also had a uh, Douglas Avenue Pale Ale from Hopping Gnome, which is also in Wichita. Um, and then when I got to Oklahoma City, which is my favorite stop on the trip, 
Um, had a whole bunch of great stuff. Um, from Stone Cloud, I had uh, Bad and Bougie. It was a Imperial IPA, New England style. They had a really cool uh, 70s um, like living room slash bowling alley style place where you like have to score yourself and everything else. So I had some local stuff there as well. Had an F5 IPA from Coop Ale Works. Had an 8-bit pale ale from Tallgrass. Um, and then they have a German beer hall upstairs. So had some more stuff there while watching the Rockets screw up beating the Warriors. Had a golden one from Anthem. Had a Rough Tail IPA from a Rough Tail local. Um, and then I also stopped over uh, Prairie Artisan Ales has, uh, has an OKC tasting room. So I had a bunch of stuff from them. Uh, had a Now Now, just a IPA. I had a New England IPA Wine Snob. Had a Twist, a farmhouse ale from them. Uh, Prairie Paradise, which is a coconut uh, porter. It was super good. And then I grabbed a Crowler to go to kind of cab off my time there. And it was uh, kind of a West Coast-style IPA, Smash Simcoe. It was a pretty Simcoe-focused hop bill there. Very nice. Yeah, I'm interested to hear that uh, OKC was the best stop because like OKC always gets like kind of crapped on when people talk about the NBA cities. Dude, OKC is like legit as hell. It's like if Austin was still cool, huh? And like, like it's it's like a smaller version of Portland and Austin. That's super interesting. I've never heard that about there, but honestly, I trust like you. I I had never heard that about there. <laughs> and then like I, I I was very surprised when I got there, and like there were all these like. Not to get into politics on the post, there was a lot of very blue outposts throughout the city. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, you were probably going to a lot of like, just overall, like you were probably in a lot more like collegiate towns, and that's you know, you always get that sense when you're there, even like in the Midwest or in the Southwest. Yeah, I was like, it was yeah, very much like was in like kind of like the hipster parts of town. Like had some really really great food. I posted up on Instagram for those who follow me. Had a it was a cornflake fried chicken. Um, sandwich that had jalapenos and bacon and honey on it and it was delightful that that sounds all good yeah i i I was floored it was like 10 bucks too because oklahoma city pricing is the best but yeah i highly recommend okc yes unless you're uh kevin durant apparently well the thing is too i feel like the nba crowd um they're probably not looking to do what i do in cities which is like park it at a craft beer bar with a couple tvs that's probably true, yes. So that's probably why it gets crapped on. Yeah, and and I, I mean, you know, it also might not be the same as like going to like a giant city, like you know, you're going to most of the other other NBA cities. It is pretty. It's probably the smallest of them, or at least close. Yeah, um, between there, maybe Milwaukee. I mean, New Orleans is tiny, but New Orleans is like a destination, right? Um, yeah, Milwaukee. So, like, I get it, but. Um, it's good to hear there's some fun stuff in case I ever find my way there. I've not, never been to Oklahoma, but not opposed to it. My first time. Gonna make it happen, man. How many states did you wind up hitting overall? Uh, four. So we got to Omaha and we spent like a, less than a day there because we got in like afternoon um, and then left like by midday the following morning. But Omaha is actually right across the bridge from Iowa, Council Bluffs. So we popped over there quick so I could get to Iowa, a state that I hadn't been to. Um, then it was a four and a half drive down to four and a half hour drive down to Wichita, but we stopped in Topeka on the way down and Topeka was actually pretty cool too. Um, like smaller city, but like had a really cool park, stopped at a cool coffee shop and then, you know, finished out the the last two hours, got down to Wichita. Wichita is really like, 
cool city. We stayed pretty much like in their uh, their old town area. It's like an eight by eight block of just like kind of you know breweries and like hipper bars and restaurants. And I stopped at a cool craft beer spot. Um, had some more fried chicken, uh, but yeah, like that was a great area. And then yeah, then from there we just drove right down to Oklahoma City, and that was only like another two hours and twenty minutes from Wichita. Nice. It's funny because you think that these things are way way farther apart than they are, especially in like middle America, but. Yeah they're, not. yeah, they're not too bad. Like, Tulsa's not too far from Oklahoma City either. So, like, we, we had a nice, like, it was, like, seven hours almost, like, driving the total. But at the same time, like, you split it up enough, and, and, and it's really not uh, too terrible at all. Like, the worst stretch is just, like, when you leave Omaha to head towards Wichita, there's, like, a huge stretch of the Kansas Turnpike where there's, like, it's, like, a toll road. So there's hardly anything there to, like, see or do. You can't really get off. So it, it that becomes a little monotonous, but the rest of it's cool. This has been John and Dan are shocked to find out there are cool things away from the toasts because they are very much <laughs> liberal very coastal much stereotypes <laughs> of New York City and Los Angeles. This is very true. Uh, something else, <laughs> something else we're not going to do stereotypical of New York or Los Angeles. Talk about Sunbelt football briefly. No, this is definitely one of the, the lesser coastal elite things that we can do with some relative authority. This is true. There's. There are a couple coastal teams, including Coastal Carolina, in this league, though. Coastal Carolina, having been to Charleston a number of times, which is one of my favorite American cities, um, definitely coastal. Very coastal. Um, Georgia State, not coastal, but in a coastal state. Yes, and in Atlanta, in which Atlanta. is... <laughs> you wouldn't know much... it. You wouldn't know it if you're in Atlanta, though. No, I was just there. Did not did not encounter... I saw some Georgia State stuff, actually. That's not, that's not uh, true. But... Um, also Atlanta, like very uh, more metropolitan, and like everyone there is from the north. So you know that does that, that kind of counts as a coastal elitism in the Sun Belt. It can. All right, so not to like run down the entire conference, but um, I think there's there's three teams that I have my eye on. I think that this division setup to start is really stupid um, because you have ten teams, you, you divided them up into divisions, five teams in each. It's really idiotic. Um, and the other problem is that one of the divisions has one good team in it. Um, yep. That's problematic. They're wicked unbalanced. <laughs> this, is just, this is just a terrible idea. Um, for those who don't have a uh, magazine in front of you, and I, uh, I started off magazine season. I tweeted at Dan yesterday when I saw the uh, Tulane page uh, catch my eye. But yeah, it's magazine season. This is my first of probably two or three magazines this, uh, this month. I started with Lindy's, uh, which... Is the same magazine for everyone except for the covers, which I don't really understand why I bother with the covers, but they did. So I have an Oklahoma version of Lindy's in my hand. Um, so yeah, this conference is basically App State and Troy and maybe Arkansas State, um, and that's really it. Uh, I'm rooting for Troy because I just think that they've been really fun the last few years, and they don't get talked about enough because they're Troy, and, and that's just what happens in your, if, when you're in the Sun Belt, but... Um, they have a chance to be really high scoring. Uh, they actually provide a perfect foil for Appalachian State, which is much more defensively focused. Uh, I'm really excited to see those two, and I wish we could see them in a, in a conference championship game instead of what will just end up being like a divisional matchup that decides their, their stupid you know, divisional setup for some reason. Yeah, I mean, the East is definitely the stronger division across the board, especially if Georgia Southern finds itself again. Um, slash, you know, Georgia State and Coastal Carolina continue their upward, tra- upward trajectory. I would argue that the West might be more fun this year 
because Arkansas State um, could be really, really good. Um, actually, Bill C. I think it has some finishing first, although it's kind of a toss-up between them, App State, and Troy. Yeah. Um, but they are also aided by the fact that they, I think they have App State at home. They don't play Troy at all. Uh, their only other, like, huge game, they play Alabama, which, you know, who cares what happens in that game with regard to, like, what it means for them overall. Then you have ULM, which is um, based on, partially on last year, but also assuming that they don't take some wild swing on defense, um, just bet overs in ULM games because, good lord. Oh, yeah. They, I mean, they'll be fun in that regard. They also can't stop anybody, though, so that'll be the big uh, challenge. That, that's what I mean. <laughs> like, they, <Yeah. laughs> they cannot stop anybody. And they can store probably on anybody, and they have one of the best quarterbacks in the G5 um, in Caleb Evans. So, yeah. I mean, overs in the Sun Belt are pretty fun in general because I think the Sun Belt's just, like, consistently been a pretty pretty fun lead to watch. But ULM especially is going to be, like, the, like, nonsense, like, crazy point total games. Um, and I'm going to try to remember to check their overs every week. Arkansas State has a little bit more of a chance to be more balanced, although they give up a lot of points, too. Overall, though, like, App State and Troy are definitely the more balanced teams of the, like, top tier here. Oh, yeah. I mean, Arkansas State probably has probably has the most talent from a, like, pro standpoint. But it's, they, not, it's not by much over, over, over App State and Troy. They've done a nice job of, of uh, finding uh, Power 5 cast-offs. Well, they've created a great model. I mean, they, they wanted to be, years ago, the Boise State of the South, and they've, they've kind of taken on a little bit of that, you know, personality, and, and, and they, they've upgraded their recruiting. They've really th- found ways to, to stand out in a league that, you know, most people outside of our profession probably couldn't tell you more than three teams in it, but they've still managed to stand out. Um, some other notes here. Um, the West does feel like it's kind of the broke division, and I don't really feel like that's... Maybe that's mean. I don't really think it's fair to them, though, to put them all up against one another. And I don't think it's fair to the Eastern teams to have them have to face one another so often. Because, like, if you look at, like, the budgets of these athletic departments, like, Arc State's really the only one of these five in the West that has money available to them. Because um, South Alabama certainly doesn't. UL Monroe doesn't really tap into that Duck Dynasty connection they've got. I'm not calling UL Lafayette, Louisiana, because they're not. Um... No, that's some, like, aggressive overbranding. But, like, everybody's buying it now. Like, every single media outlet now refers to them, as, like, except for Bill C., refers to them as Louisiana, and I think that's just, like, the dumbest thing. I think because there's been such, like, it's been so difficult, because, like, you're not sure to put, like, UL-Lafayette, or just call them Lafayette, which they frown on, and I don't like ULL, I don't think. Um, so it's just, I think they've been annoying enough to where people are like, fine, Louisiana, even though, like... Pisses everybody off, first. Though. The first couple of times I saw that, I like didn't even know people were talking about Lafayette. Yeah, I thought like like and mostly on like basketball because I think they were decent in basketball a couple of years ago. I was like, wait, what? Like, who's is Louisiana just like tiny school? I like didn't realize it was there. No, it's just Lafayette. Um, I will say I appreciate them using the uh, the the pepper um, as a as a logo more often. I think we've talked about that before, especially especially when they use it as the apostrophe in Ragin. That's like oh, one yeah. of my favorite uh, like branding details ever. I, I, I give them a lot of credit for that. I, I think that I do hate though the the, the apostrophe in Ray. Like I, I like I like the apostrophe being a pepper, but I hate the fact there's an apostrophe there because it feels very minor league. Um, some other things I like in this conference though: um, Appalachian State Clifton Duck, their cornerback. Um, just having the last name Duck, just kind of cool. 
really want to see what uh, Joe Moglia can do with Coastal Carolina. Um, last year, they still managed to like look presentable-ish, um, despite not having him on the sideline. Like, dealt, dealt with some health issues. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to see what Coastal can do. I'd really like to see Texas State turn into something because they really, I know uh, lots of folks have talked about this from a location standpoint. Like, San Marcos is a perfect area for a, a burgeoning college football powerhouse at the lower levels. So it's interesting that they've, like, taken so long to really get off the ground because, um, like, where, where they are is pretty much right in the middle of, like, every big city. Um, so there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to thrive a little bit more. And then, yeah, South Alabama. I mean, they I don't know why they're not better. Um, but, again, this is this is a weird conference with, with some weird divisional structures. They got rid of Idaho and New Mexico State. Um, and now they're, now they're going to try to forge ahead with a real sense of brand. And I'm not really sure where that goes. And I'm not really sure how successful that is without, uh, without adding a couple more teams. But who knows? I guess we'll see, we'll see what happens at the first ever uh, Sunbelt Championship game this, uh, this December. Yeah, I had forgotten they. Uh, I forgot they were doing that um, until I re- started, you know, reading up on some of these teams uh, ahead of this. I, I think the push for more championship games is like a little silly, especially you know we we've talked about like you know the Big Twelve, which is kind of a weird thing, but like at least this has a chance to be fun. Um, seeing probably Arkansas State against either uh, App State or Troy. Hopefully Troy, um, if only just so it's not a rematch, but. You know, I, it, overall, though, I think we'd both like to see a little more balance in these divisions because the East just overall has such a better chance of being good on a year-to-year basis. I mean, aside from Coastal, which is new, and I think, like you said, has has some some real real promise based on like what the school is. Um, like all these teams have had pretty solid years in like the recent history. I mean, Georgia Southern was a legit FCS power and had a really good start to its FBS tenure. Just made a horrible coaching hire. Um, that didn't jive with its identity at all. Uh, but overall, like, I don't know. I, I, I just wish, like, all conferences just, like, figured out a new way to do divisions because they're just, they're just really dumb. <laughs> and we've talked about the ACC well, yeah, so like, much. but The ACC is terrible. This one's dumb just because of the, the you don't need to split five and five. I think where, where I would just like to see them progress, like, for me, put the two best teams because, like, I, as much as I think the Big 12's idea is stupid – at least, like, the winner of that game is still getting into a major bowl game. If, let's say, App State or Troy or Arc State, like, if one of them goes undefeated and then you have to play in a meaningless championship game, like, we saw this happen with Houston, um, what's it called, back in, uh, what was it, 2012, maybe, the CUSA game. We saw the Ball State one, I think it was, like, 2008, maybe. There's been a couple other years where, like, you know, unbeaten or one loss teams have been in line to grab that uh, that automatic bid, and instead they get screwed because you know the one million dollars that you know you get from that championship game being on TV isn't really worth the, the lost revenues from not being able to play as part of the uh, the playoff and the access balls. Yeah, I mean, I I do wonder how much they're getting like in terms of guaranteed TV money. Assuming I assume ESPN has the the Sun Belt Championship on like real like big time ESPN, right. probably on like some random, probably like that Thursday night or whatever. I think I'm sure so. I could look this up. Yeah, that would make sense, right? I mean, if it isn't, there's literally no reason to have it. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully this the I'm sure they're getting some kind of bid payout, um, at least relatively. Um, hopefully it's worth it for them because otherwise, like, it it could backfire a bit. But I'm not going to complain about more. 
more high level Sun Belt football because like in terms of the G five, that might be like the most fun. I mean, it's kinda like what the Mac was like a couple years ago when the Mac was so offense heavy. Um and you get like kind of interesting schools, uh, which is nice. Because it's such like a weird, diverse array of uh, Southern schools. I would agree. Um, all right, last thing uh, on the Sun Belt before we close out today. How many of these coaches do you think get hired elsewhere? I think, I think Neil Brown's gone from Troy no matter what. Um, I think that if Arc State goes like nine and three or something, I think Blake Anderson's gone, and that's probably it for now. Um, it's tough. I mean, I'm pulling up the full list here, so I remember, like, who, who is here. Um, it's interesting, like, Neil Brown, I'm surprised, is still there. Um, I'm surprised. Well, no last one... year's hiring was just odd. Last year's hiring was odd, and I do wonder if that's a trend, because it trended way away from G5 head coaches. I right. think only two of them got big jobs, and that were, those were, um, Arkansas hiring, uh, what's Chad name? Morris. Um, Chad Morris, which he kind of jumped the line on uh, on his reputation from Clemson, basically, more than anything else, because obviously SMU was like a huge rebuild job, and he was on his way to doing it, and he installed a really fun offense. But um, I think he was like, you know, in terms of what he actually achieved there, like he definitely got a bigger job than, than he would have projected to otherwise, but he has the reputation from Clemson. Right. Um, well, and the Texas and then, recruited, well, and like the Texas-Arkansas area recruiting roots, too, at least. Right. That, too. Um, I mean, he, I think he makes a lot of sense for Arkansas. I think that's yeah. a pretty good hire. Um, and then, obviously, Scott Frost going from UCF to his alma mater, Nebraska, which couldn't have been a more obvious hire, you know, if it slapped Nebraska in the face. They're lucky that he, like, was as – I mean, they're honestly lucky that they were able to beat out some other schools for him uh, and that he had that level of interest going, in going back to his alma mater where he was always, like – it never seemed like it was he was totally sold in going back there, even though people spent, you know, years discussing it as the obvious fit. So those two, I think those are the only two huge G5 to P5 hires. Yeah, obviously, I think um, Neil Brown is the obvious one. He's had such a good run at Troy, turning them into, like, a legit G5 power. I think there are some interesting names. I think he and Blake Anderson, who's been at Arkansas State for a bit now, he took over for Harson, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I mean, he's he's been, I'm looking at his record now, he's been... Um, between seven and nine wins his whole time there, um, just been very consistent. He's kept them uh, basically at the around the level that Harson had them at. Right. Scott Satterfield's interesting. I think he has he has pretty deep App State roots. He played quarterback there. He coached most of his he spent most of his time in the coaching ranks at App State. So um, I think he should get looks. I think it's going to take a real big job to pull him out of there. Um, I wonder if like if like West Virginia opened up. Maybe that would be uh, West Virginia, a like if Fedora just like completely tanked this year at UNC. Yeah, be, like, he's a North Carolina guy. Those that would make sense. I think he could get a job. I think it's going to be like harder to get him than your average like Appalachian State level coach. Um, obviously, Moglia is is you know different situation. He's older. He has health issues. That's not. I don't think. I think his time as a candidate for these types of jobs is probably closed. Yeah. Um, uh, Sean Elliott obviously has some Power 5 experience, but I think he's going to have to prove it more as a head coach. He did a nice job last year, um, but obviously South Carolina, it wasn't really his fault. He was handed a tough situation with Spirit leaving midway through the year, but he went 1-5 and five as a head coach at South Carolina, so I don't think he's right in line. Billy Napier, uh, I don't think he's going to leave after a year. I think he has an interesting background. Um, I thought that was a really nice hire for Lafayette. So, and then a lot of these other guys are too new. Like Everyone else in the league is pretty much hired between 2016 and 2018. 
like the 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 longest tenured coach besides Moley, and he obviously moved up mid midway through um, to the FBS was Satterfield, who was twenty thirteen. So um, it's pretty crazy. All these guys have basically been put in the last two years, which is it makes it tough to really project. I know I know these coaches move up ranks faster now, but it's definitely um, tougher to to know because there's such volatility in terms of what they can achieve on a year to year basis. Well, it's also tough in the Sun Belt right now. I feel too. Like, I feel like it's not a league that you can hire off one year of success. Like, you need an extended run at this point to to prove that like you're the real deal. And that's something like you know Satterfield's done, and uh, like Anderson's done, and now Neil Brown's done a little bit more of. Like, you need to be able to have several years of success to prove that it's not just you taking advantage of a down conference. And I think you know CUSA is probably suffering from a little bit of that. Um, even the Mac, to be honest, like, in, in, like two years ago, like was kind of like the peak of like, you know, Mac hiring. And I think you've seen that cool, just like you have across the rest of the G5. Like it's now become, and, and I know a uh, podcast name played, nobody's talked about this a little bit. Like right now, like you're not really getting hired out, out of, you know, the lesser conferences anymore. Um, it's pretty much, it's a pipeline from the American athletic conference to, you know, the, the P5 and that's it. Like it, and it doesn't really put an extra step in either. Unfortunately for these coaches that are coaching, you know, in the Mac, in the Sun Belt, in the mountain West, like it's not like you can jump from there to the American athletic conference. And there's like this, like it, it doesn't, that, that move doesn't make much sense. You might as well skip that step and become a coordinator at the, at the P5 level at a major, uh, major school. And if you're in the Sun Belt, probably a major school being the SEC. Yeah, and we see these shifts like pretty frequently in terms of hiring, um, because ADs just kind of copy each other and, and and do whatever has been working for other schools or like like minded schools. So I'm sure there'll be a swing back towards P5 or G5 head coaches uh, once a couple of them have some bit success. I mean, I, I I've looked this up before. Like, there's no there's no magic bullet in terms of hiring for these big jobs. People work out from all over, and then except if you you're know, a defensive any... coordinator. <laughs> yeah, don't hire defensive coordinators. Um, at least that was a case like when I did like a lot of look, uh, research into it, like defensive coaches did not work out as well, but you know, it only takes a couple to, I mean, you know, Nick Saban's a defensive coordinator. So, or uh, I'm assuming he was a, he was a former, he was a defensive coach. He's a D backs coach. Um, but overall, like offensive coaches definitely worked out better and, and people with head coaching experience definitely worked out better, but I mean, you can nail a hire and miss a hire, like no matter what the background is, it, it's very, there's, there's definitely no like signature uh, identifying factor in terms of like what you, what you need for a hire. It can all work out or it all, it all can't. And a lot of it comes down to, you know, individual fit with a school, um, which makes it very hard. Yeah. Individual fit with a school where the fan base is at administrative support, like there's so much else that goes into that. And yes, you can kind of boil it down to like some things that won't work. Uh, but there, there's a lot of things that they can work. And again, it's really just depending on all that support. So good luck to these coaches. I think especially Brown, I think he's really like done a really nice job with Troy. Hopefully, you know, he, uh, he finds somewhere to cash that in. I don't necessarily know where in the SEC. There's not necessarily a uh, like easy place to jump to over there right now, especially when they turned over so much of the league. But Never know. Somebody else might uh, might decide to get restless, take a flyer. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's the thing with him. There isn't an obvious spot. Um, he was at Texas Tech for a bit, so if they wanted to move on from uh, from uh, oh god, I'm bad with names today. Um, Cliff Kingsbury. Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury. Yeah, I can like picture him. Obviously, who can't? 
<laughs> I mean, I, I just watched Drive. Um, yeah, if they wanted to move up from Kingsbury, because I think his time at Tech uh, predated Kingsbury as head coach. He was offensive coordinator. Um, I imagine 2010 to 2012, I think that was still Leach, right? Or no, that might have been uh, the weird... Uh, the weird um, I don't even remember who the hell was in, in between them. It was, uh, what's his face, uh, from Auburn. Oh, uh... I can't remember anyone's name today. It's bad. <laughs> no, we, 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 we have to find this information now. Hold on. Uh, he, he was just in Cincinnati, and he was fired. Kind of oh, Tuberville. Yes. There you go. Um, I remember, I remember like everything about these coaches I'm trying except, to bring up, except the thing you're trying <laughs> to remember most. Except for the name. Um, yeah. All right. So he actually, he actually played at Kentucky while Mike Leach was at Kentucky, and then he transferred to UMass, which is a weird transition. He he played under Hal Mummy and uh, Mike Leach, so um, he at least has a background outside of Kingsbury. So maybe Tech because that could open up. Um, I don't see Kentucky moving on from Stoops, um, no. but that was his last stop before Troy. Um, but otherwise, like, his background's really Kentucky and UMass and Troy, which is kind of a weird grouping. And to be honest, um, UMass isn't hiring either because, A, you oh, don't want to go there, and B, Whipple's there it, for life. UMass ain't hiring anyone away from anywhere, so. Too, too true. Um, all right. You know what? I think this was a good episode, Dan. I think we, uh, I think we covered all the bases. I think everyone got their Tyus Battle Talk in the front end. If you, for some <laughs> reason, tuned into this in the back end, Go to the beginning, and you'll get all the Syracuse stuff you wanted. Yes, if you if you start your podcast from 38 minutes in, we promise we did talk Syracuse at one point. <laughs> and it only took us like five tries to get this podcast uh, going, so good, good on us. <laughs> to, to, to take you behind the curtain for a second. Um, all right, Dan, uh, anything else before we depart? No, uh, looking forward to... Uh, Getting into like the true off season, we now know our basketball team for next year, which is fun. Um, so, yeah, this will be uh, it'll be it'll be interesting over the next couple months. But now, looking forward to dive into all these football conferences that only we care about, and then eventually some other ones that people do care about. Yeah, we'll get there by July or so. Yep. Anyway. Uh, that's Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into Trinian's and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, and I don't know. Go. Uh, go I'm rooting for the Cavs. Go I'm Cavs. Pretty openly rooting for Cavs. <laughs> yeah, go Cavs. Yeah. Go Cavs. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a -a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.